You know, we started this series about Deborah. And then Deborah was the judge, of course. And then we moved to Huldah, who is a prophetess. And then we began to talk about Priscilla, the tent-making minister. And today, the best for last is we want to talk about Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her fierce faith. Now, many, many hold Mary in high esteem, and she should be. But some groups uh, choose to not only pray to Mary, but even worship Mary. And she is definitely worthy of some admiration and celebration. However, if Mary was here, I think she would tell us that only one is worthy to be worshiped. And that's God, the person of Jesus. He is worthy of all worship and honor. It's to him that her life is committed her life of service, her life of sacrifice. And she lives in this reality about how he must become greater while I must become less. Mary is a great example of a life that pursues God above all else. She lives a life of worship in the way that she thinks and acts and speaks. She surrenders her life as God challenges her. She gives credit and glory to God at every moment. But when we often think of Mary... We're trying to figure out maybe who she is or what she was like. Instead of really getting into the nitty-gritty of her character, her love for God, her willingness to serve, we try and figure out how many children did she have? What was her relationship with Joseph really like? But today I want to unpack an understanding of Mary that would encourage us all, would encourage us all to have a fierce faith. There's one declaration that Mary makes in her journey And of course, her greatest challenge is being the mother of Jesus. She's approached by an angel named Gabriel, and she's told that she will have a child as a virgin, that the Holy Spirit would empower her, that God would be born of her flesh. This could be overwhelming. This could be a difficult calling and task. But Mary's response is this. In the book of Luke, Mary says these words. I am the Lord's servant. Do you hear that statement? Do you hear the resolve in her heart? Do you hear the hope that she might have because of God? This is why we want to take a deep look at the fierce nature of of the mother of Jesus, the woman named Mary. Now imagine just for a moment the power of that statement. I am the Lord's servant. What does that statement propose or even suppose? If I am the Lord's servant, what does that mean? We all love to talk about Jesus as our savior, as our friend, but what does that mean? What what is she talking about? Well, clearly she sees God as her savior, her friend. She is surrendering his life to him as Lord. Now, Lordship, is an issue of trust. Lordship in our lives is an issue of priority and obedience. Lordship implies that when God invites you to follow him, you say, yes, you'll follow. Now, whether you have all the answers or not, or whether you understand how it's going to work out, when God asks, we follow, whether it's convenient or not. Being the Lord's servant is a declaration that I am not my own. That's what makes her faith so fierce. It's a fierce faith that Mary bears. 
And she bears great fruit, great character in this process. So this is our big idea for the day. We want to unpack this as we look at Mary, that fruitfulness of a fierce faith is found in faithfulness to God. Say that fast a few times, right? The fruitfulness of a fierce faith is found in faithfulness to God. Now, I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. Now, Luke chapter 1, we're going to start uh, after about verse 26, and we realize that God has already approached Mary through Gabriel, the angel. He's come to her, and he's begun to talk to her, to share with her the news that she's about to be a mother. Here's what it says in verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Uh, Can we pause there for a second? I mean, who would you be? How would you be? If an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord has come to you and begins to speak on God's behalf that you are highly favored. I think many of us would pause for a moment. I mean, uh, I don't get visits from a celestial being, right? I mean, I don't find myself having face-to-face conversations with an angel. And Mary had to begin to say, why me? What could God be asking of me? What would make this so important that God would send his messenger to me. Let's, let's read on in verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God and you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give you uh, uh, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit would come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, that will be born, will be called the Son of God. Now sometimes, sometimes I get a, a, a little weird when I think about these passages. I think about maybe the angel of the Lord just comes up and is like, Hey Mary, I've got some good news And I've got some odd news, right? And as Mary begins to plan this out, you can imagine that she's like, okay, this has got to be a joke, right? This is, is there, is there, is there a camera hidden somewhere? What's going on? How, how can this be asked of me? As you do some study a little bit about Mary and who she is and where she comes from, Mary comes from humble beginnings, a region uh, of agrarian roots. Her people, her family worked with their hands, blue collar, hardworking, and a respected area of the region. But it wasn't known as being the prominent people of the communities. As a virgin, obviously, there would be some questions. She was engaged to be married to Joseph. That is, she was pledged, and after about a year, she was intended to marry Joseph. And this this proposal, this engagement, was as good as being married. That once you entered into that uh, arrangement, that agreement that it was as good as being married. And Mary's age really isn't given, but as you do some study, you'll kind of figure out that she's probably, probably somewhere around middle school age, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age. And so as we jump into this passage, I want to give us four findings, four findings that we can see out of this passage about Mary's fierce faith and how it impacts the world around us. The first finding that we have is this, 
Mary's faith was a fulfillment of prophecy. Mary's faith, that is in God, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, when we speak of the Bible, we speak about it as being kind of a a library of books, 66 different books. And some of those books are are, uh, of history, and some of them are of poetry, and some of them are about prophets who come and speak to the nation of Israel. Uh, Of course, there's the Gospels, and then there's the, the letters to local churches. But the Bible is one overall story about God's love for humanity, that the Holy Spirit spoke into multiple authors to be able to tell about the coming of Jesus the sacrifice of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. Now, when we read Scripture, we understand that there are two Testaments. We would call them the Old Testament or the New Testament, but in reality, it's probably better to call them the First Testament and the Second Testament. The First Testament is all about coming, uh, all about the coming of the Messiah, the, the, the Chosen One, God in flesh. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there are these passages, these, these conversations, these foretelling of what it would look like for God in flesh, for the Messiah to come, to establish his kingdom, to establish his earthly and heavenly realm uh, reign on the earth. In the New Testament, which is where we find the book of Luke, we find this testimony. And Luke is trying to describe to Mary that what she is being called to, what she's being asked of, is the fulfillment that generation before generation before generation before generation has been praying for, hoping for. And this is something that all of Israel longed for. You know, this is not like just some sports team that hopes to to win a title in the coming years. This is hundreds of, and even thousands of years of history coming to reality that Jesus, her child to be born, is God in the flesh, the one who would give his life, the king of all kings, to come and serve, to free all of us from our sin and shame. The second finding we find about Mary, though, is this, is that Mary's faith in God protected God's reputation, not just her own. Mary's faith in God protected God's reputation, not just her own. Now, 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 when we think about Mary, obviously we think about her age. We think about her engagement to Joseph. We think about her, her sexual purity. And in all honesty, we probably question. We probably wrestle with this dynamic. And you can imagine as a young girl stepping into a relationship to be married, that she could be concerned about how people might see her how people might see Joseph. But the reality is Mary's heartbeat is not simply to protect her reputation, but it's to protect God's reputation. Can you think about that for a moment? Mary is protecting God's reputation. By saying yes, by stepping out as his servant, Mary is accepting a task that by no means is going to keep her looking innocent in front of the world. It may oftentimes bring more questions than answers. Do you think, do you think that Mary might have been concerned whether people would believe her or not? Absolutely. Do you think that Mary fully understood what God was ultimately asking of her? Probably not. But the presence of fear and the presence of hope live in this balance and her trust for God allows us her to walk through the tension, to be able to step out in faith and be obedient 
even to an incredibly difficult task like this. I think the third finding that we find in this passage is this, is that Mary's faith in God ushered in a heavenly rebellion. Now, oftentimes when we look at the the portraits of of Mary, we see kind of a, a young, quiet, feeble woman, right? Maybe an angelic look around her, silent and quiet. But Mary understood who Jesus was to be. And she understood what this Messiah was to be about. And Jesus was the king of all kings. And so as people would hear the coming of Jesus, people would hear the story of the Messiah, the son of God to be born to the earth, all of Israel would begin to hope that their oppressors, their struggle, their pain, their their being in captivity, whatever it had been in their history is now about to be thrown off because God has come. Scott McKnight is a theologian and a writer, and he writes this uh, about Mary. He says, Mary rejoices over what Gabriel has told her. Her son is the son of David, the Messiah, the future king. She exalts God, uh, she exalts that God is about to establish justice by ushering in the kingdom that all of Israel, especially the poor, have yearned for. He goes on and writes and says this, it is a voice crying from the depths that God's Messiah will finally bring justice, justice to the poor. It's a voice proclaiming uh, a new order, an an order centered on her son, the one who would save his people from their sins. Maybe that's why Jesus in his first public reading of scripture he, he reads a First Testament, an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, and he says these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus said this in front of those who are listening. Today, today that scripture has been fulfilled. Mary has a fierce faith, a fierce faith that brings in a heavenly rebellion, that brings heaven to earth, that begins to overthrow the powers and the principalities of the day so that God's kingdom may have its moment for the rest of eternity. The fourth finding we have is this, is that Mary's faith was empowered by God's spirit, not just her own. No kidding, right? I mean, the human spirit, the human will is incredibly powerful, but it's limited. This human spirit has the ability to drive ourselves further than what we would normally go. But what do we do about those impossible transformations that we cannot do on our own? What do we do about those moments when our, our, our marriage needs put back together or, or the bankruptcy of our wallet needs to be fixed or, or, or when God just calls us to obedience to have a conversation with a friend that's incredibly difficult for us? Like Mary, it's a conversation with ourself. That the Holy Spirit is at work. That the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us. That when we are called by God and God gives us a challenge, an opportunity to serve, we must understand what God promises, God also provides. 
we must understand that God is the one that is bringing us to these moments and God will not let us down. So maybe for some of us in this room today, maybe there's something that God has called you to that's very much well beyond yourself. Maybe God's asked something of you that uh, you're not comfortable with. Uh, maybe you think about, well, there was a time when I was younger that I was uh, really passionate about God, but that's kind of drifted. And maybe today you're wrestling, is, is God going to begin to invite me back in? What would happen today if we began to realize that God has not quit on any of us? God's not given up on us. God is just as prepared today as he was when God first called you and invited you when God prompts you into a step of obedience. See, we, need, we often live by this mantra in this world, don't we? To be true to ourselves. You know, if you're true to yourself, how could you be wrong? But Mary lived by a completely different mantra. Her mantra was this. Be true to God above all else. We live in a world that desires to be used in many ways. We want to be significant. We want to have an influential life. We want to see this world as a better place. But we don't realize that in the pursuit of our true self, we get caught up in chasing ourselves. You want to do great things? You want to change the world? Be true to God first. Be true to the desires that God has for you. Allow God's presence to work in your life. Begin to understand God's will and God's word. Be the kind of people that when God challenges you, when scripture confronts you, when people begin to challenge you, be the kind of person that says yes when God is knocking on your door. Mary has a fierce faith. And it's because of her commitment to the faithfulness to God. Her faithfulness to God led her to a fruitfulness that, of course, ushered in Jesus, but also transformed her life. I am convinced, outside of being the mother of Jesus, that the example of Mary is the perfect example for all of us. A fierce fruitfulness that happens because of her faithfulness back to God. And even, even if that means we have to put our lives second. Let's move to a time of response. Oh, that all sounds great, oh magical video guy from outer space, right? For those of you who are new here, that's not a magical video guy from outer space. That's Danny. He's our lead pastor and often is here in person but happens to be in Urbana this week. But I, I want to be real with you for a second. You see, we hear a message like that and we hear all these amazing ideas and he says things like God may have something very specific for you or God may have something big for you to do. And our response is, no. I'm nothing special, God. I mean, he just spent 20 minutes talking about Mary. Do you realize who Mary was? Mary was the mother of Jesus. Mary was the mother of God. And you're comparing my life to hers. If I'm real, it just doesn't compute for me. I'm nothing special. Can I say to you first, if that's you in this room, 
that we're all special in the eyes of God. That's a, that's a given. But in the eyes of the world, you're right. Doesn't matter what your talents are, all that stuff. The reality is the world probably doesn't see you as something special. And, and can I tell you something as a little 13-year-old, soon-to-be woman who was scared out of her mind, contrary to what the 90s movie told us, there was nothing special about Mary. Mary was not special until she was. Deborah was not special that we talked about in week two until she was. Hulda was not special until she was. Priscilla was not special until she was. Esther was not special. Ruth was not special. All of these amazing, fierce women of the Bible that we talk about were not special until they were. And what made them special is because they chose to put God first. They chose to have faith in him. They chose to stand for him. They chose to make their life a life of worship. And it's not just the ladies that we're talking about, men of God throughout the Bible, whether it was Abraham or Moses or David or Peter, James, John, Paul, whoever you want to name, it wasn't the fact that they were great men or great women that made them special. It was that they were godly women and godly men that made them special. And so you ask this morning, what in the world does that look like? What does living a life of worship look like? Because I come every week, Jeff, I, I come and I, I sit in the seat and I listen to the sermon and I sing and you taught me I should raise my hand sometimes, so I do that and I, all these different things. You, I try, what, what does a life of worship look like? Well, if you come here often, you might already actually see a glimpse of it and I want to encourage you that we're going to learn more in our next series called Habits about kind of some spiritual disciplines and some ways that we can lean into life as worship, as life, as putting God first. But you already know some, and let me help you. If you're new here, something weird's about to happen is we're going to get up and we're going to do what we call response time. And we're going to begin to walk around the room and we're going to do some things at tables and stuff around the room. And, uh, it's the most powerful time of my week, usually. And what I've realized is, believe it or not, most things around here don't happen accidentally. It's not a coincidence that these stations actually give us a hint of what it might look like to live a life of worship, to live a life with God first outside of these walls. That when we come up front, and I want to encourage you to do that shortly here, that we come up front and we pray at these benches along the front of stage and that we kneel down and take a posture of kneeling before our King. When we lay our problems on the benches and we give them away to Jesus and say, please take these from me, and we do not pick them back up as we walk away. And when we kneel to praise and worship our King, when we have that posture, both here as a glimpse and outside these walls, we begin to live 
a life of worship. Or maybe it's these boxes around the room. I know, I know, here comes the pitch, Jeff, right? But here's the reality. When we do this give and response box thing every week, it's very purposeful. It's not by coincidence. Because the fact that we fill out these little cards that say, hey, I want to take a next step, or maybe I want to get baptized, or man, I have this weird question, it's because we are committed as a church family to growing together, to doing things together, to getting better together. And that happens through those giving and response boxes when you fill out that information, when you put it in there. Or maybe we're committed together to be generous individually so that the the whole, the church can be generous and do great things in the kingdom that we can worship through our tithes and through our offerings in those give and respond boxes or through our app. And it's not a coincidence that that's a glimpse of how we can act, yes, in this room, but far beyond these walls. Maybe it's the six tables that are around the room that have a little candle sitting on them. It's these tables that have little pieces of bread and little cups of juice that represent the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us, that represent the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us. And we come together as the church body on the weekend in a service to celebrate that, to remember that And to worship not only a God who loved us enough to give away everything and die on the cross, but to raise again with all of the power of the universe to be our king. And we do that in here as a glimpse of what it might be like to worship that way outside, to remember that daily outside of these walls. And so I'm going to encourage you to do all of these things, but as we begin to wrap up, I wanna, I wanna be honest with you. This series is messing me up a little bit. You see, I have two daughters. One's 14, she's amazing. Her name's Adia. And um, her name means God's gift. She's named after a song by Sarah McLaughlin, but her, her name means God's gift. And we find out daily, and she's figuring out daily what that means, the fact that her life is a gift to her and a gift to us and all those pieces. It's an awesome walk together. My other daughter, her name is Lyric. And from the beginning, her name has been synonymous for us with an old Elton John song. Many of you probably know it. that says, you can tell everybody this is your song because we want her life to be a song to be her song. That's how she got her name. But it's not just my daughter, Lyric. It's how we need to live. It's not to come and sing a song on the weekend in this room, which is amazing, by the way. It's all those people I listed off made that a priority and that they worshiped together and they figured out ways to do that together, sort of a pep session to get ready to go back outside of those walls. It's an important thing, but it's not just about singing a song. It's about what does your life look like to be song for your worship daily to be your song and as a father how do I show that to my daughters how does my wife show that to them how do I show that to my wife or as a pastor how do I show that to our congregation what does it look like to live a life of worship that makes us special because we put God first and it's just been wrecking me How do I make a life of worship my song? As we close, I want to look at two songs and try to figure this out together. 
We're going to sing a song that we just introduced a couple of weeks ago, and it just says over and over in the in it that all I did was praise. All I did was worship. And all I did was bow down. And the rest of the song is laying out all these things that are amazing that God is doing around the, the author and how her, their life is changing and people around them are changing and all these amazing moments. And they're just saying, all, all I'm doing is worshiping God. I'm putting you first. And when I put you first, everything else falls into place. That's what a life of worship, that's what your song should begin to look like. And so we're going to stand and we're going to sing that together in just a minute. But before we do, we're going to look at another song. It comes right after the scripture that, that Danny just taught out of. It's in Luke 1. It's the words of Mary after she finds out that she's going to be the mother of God. Do you understand what that is? And instead of saying, oh, look at me. I'm the mother of God. Bow and worship me. She says what we now know is Mary's song. And the first two lines are this. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it wasn't just her words. It was her life that became her song. Would you stand together with me? And as we be prepare to recite these words, even as our prayer this morning, along with Mary's song, I want to ask you this to wrestle with in your own heart. What is your song?